Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So did you guys watch the Westminster Dog Show? We, we did. And I watched it with my four and a half year old who like rooted with his whole heart for every dog that came out. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> Which all was dogs very are sweet. Well, all dogs, all dogs are winners. Heaven. All dogs are awesome. Yeah, dogs so are it's, great. you know, you should. Why is there not all. a cat show? I think there are. Are there? They're, they're less trainable. Yeah, they sure are. <laughs> oh, you said you said the truth there, my friend. Word, as you might tweet. <laughs> You're going to do what to my fur? <laughs> Although I recently learned that Ben has not seen the movie Best in Show. Oh. Which he yeah. would love, and we should force him to watch at some point. Yeah. I'm sure there's a security angle to that, that we could find a reason to talk about that on the show. All right. I'll watch it. Okay. And then we can discuss Let's get it. a dog, guys. Oh. A rational security dog. <laughs> that would be the third dog for the witnesses on the podcast. <laughs> we'll borrow one of your dogs. Okay. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the home stretch edition. That was me doing a question. Huh? You sounded a little querulous. Querulous? Query like the you home don't stretch. Worry. Like you don't quite know if it's really... The, the home, home stretch. stretch? Mm, what could, could we be stretch? referring to? What's your favorite home stretch? I like the downward dog. <laughs> Tying it all together. I like the report to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite Just stretch one. deep into that report. Just deep into it. Let your neck go. Let it all hang out, <laughs> Focus baby. on your breathing, Robert Mueller. Focus on your breathing. <laughs> Uh, I'm Shane Harris. I'm here in the New Jungle Studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Annecy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. I think we all need like a big stretch. Everyone take a big stretch right, for the podcast. This could be the seventh inning stretch. It could of be. The mother I feel like we should like carvo load or something. Like <laughs> yeah. we need to like physically prepare. For the ending? <laughs> for the ending. Because it feels like it's nigh. The end feels nigh. Maybe while we're recording, I'll take pictures of you all stretching and tweet them. Yeah. Or or maybe not. <laughs> All right, here we're going to tweet a picture of Shane stretching. Hang on, Shane. Just stretch. Stretch. Oh, there it is. There you go. All right, with the scotch in front of you. <laughs> this week on the podcast is Robert Mueller nearing the end of his Russia probe. Is he in a home stretch? of a pigeon stretch maybe maybe he's just given up he's like you know what guys i'm sick of this he hasn't actually <laughs> been at work it. in two weeks he's like i don't know why nobody knows i'm not here uh also the trump administration moves to block chinese telecom giant huawei and you too can have your own private Mossad. it's easy guys we're gonna tell you how to find one but let's start with the home stretch so ben there have been a number of signals lately and it seems like they are kind of building to some kind of signal crescendo, perhaps, that the Office of Special Counsel, Robert Mueller, is nearing the end of his probe. Let's first talk about what some of the signs are. And then if we agree that we are maybe heading into the home stretch here, and of course, we're going to eventually head into the ending, um, let's talk about what that means. But first, walk us through some of the signals that we have that indicate that he may be wrapping things up. Well, so the most important of them is the repeated statements, uh, both on and off the record, to journalists by senior members of the administration that the investigation is wrapping up. And Matthew Whitaker uh, said as much publicly in a in a press conference the other day. I, you know, maybe by accident, but he did say it. He appears to have said it to his wife as well, who turned around and uh, emailed Slate magazine that the Mueller investigation was wrapping up. There's uh, some OPSEC for you. Yeah, actually, uh, query whether that is proper behavior for the acting attorney general to make such disclosures to his wife. Uh, let's leave that aside. 
In addition, there do seem to be a lot of news stories attributed to, with varying degrees of specificity, Yahoo News, Mike Isikoff, a number of weeks ago, reported that the investigation would wrap up within weeks. NBC News followed up relatively shortly thereafter, saying it'd wrap up in mid-February. Well, it's now mid-February. The most important bat signal is just that people keep saying it. Uh, it appears to be people on the Justice Department side, not on the Office of Special Counsel side, that this is what they're preparing to receive a, a notice that the investigation is done or preparing to receive a report. Of course, uh, there are some countervailing signs as well. Um, you know, the Mueller grand jury was extended for another six months. There does seem to be, you know, uh, Jerome Corsi was given a uh, proposed plea deal, which he then rejected and disclosed to the public. And then he has not yet been charged, implying that there is at least some outstanding business. So there are some countervailing signs, but there are, you know, some real indications that whatever it means, we are reaching the end of the investigation. So, Susan, then the next question, I guess, becomes when will Bob Mueller issue his report, which I think, as we've pointed out here on the podcast before and that we've all talked about, is why do you assume he's writing a report? There's nothing in the special counsel guidelines that require him to write a detailed report uh, certainly not one that's made public. It just says he will report to the attorney general essentially uh, you know, at the close of investigation. I think he's supposed to get periodic updates. So you know, what, what do you think is the likely scenario here maybe based on what we've seen so far in the way the Office of Special Counsel has conducted itself? Do we think there will be some sort of closing document? And, and if there's not, importantly, then what happens next? Well, so we know there has to be some kind of closing document because the Justice Department regulations require a closing document that goes to the attorney general. So we don't know if that's going to be a report or what form it might look like, but we do know there's going to be some documentation. So the big questions are, what will that documentation look like? And then what will the attorney general, presumably by that point will be Bill Barr, what he is going to do with it? So will he make it public? Will he refer it to Congress? Uh, you know, or will he basically keep it secret and internal to uh, to the Justice Department? You know, I, I continue to, uh, there are, I think there are a lot of strong legal arguments for why maybe we shouldn't expect a report at all uh, or a report to Congress or a public report. You know, that said, it's just really, really hard for me to imagine that this doesn't conclude with a report. And whenever we talk about public disclosures of investigative information, there's always sort of this balancing of against the public need to know, against the public interest here. And it is almost impossible to come up with a more compelling case for public disclosure. Now, whether that I, I would be pretty surprised if that came directly from Mueller, right? I would think at the very least it would go through the Department of Justice, um, uh, or more likely, you know, from Congress if it ultimately ends up being turned over to the public. And there's a reason why I think it's almost inconceivable that we wouldn't get some sort of form of documentation that is made public, and that's that. We actually don't have a common understanding on what is the known facts. So just set aside the Russia collusion issue, which is, um, you know, 10 times more complex, just on the obstruction of justice question, right? What do we know? What does the reasonable member of Congress know? So Jim Comey says and testified under oath that he had a conversation in which the president told him, you know, if he could see his way to letting Michael Flynn go. President Trump said that was a lie. Now, he said it not under oath and he tweeted it and there's all kinds of reasons to not necessarily believe it. We have New York Times and Washington Post reporting on the matter. But if you're sitting in Congress right now and you are, for example, weighing an obstruction inquiry for, for impeachment hearings, do you know that Donald Trump asked Jim Comey to let Michael Flynn go? Or do you have a bunch of news reports, right? And so it seems like what's happening is, yes, we have Democrats and, and Republicans that are sort of, you know, Democrats want to see the worst and Republicans want to sort of wish it away. But they do appear to be sort of waiting or at least agreeing that the facts as Mueller presents them, even if they don't ultimately agree with the conclusions, that will be a common set of sort of an understanding about what occurred 
on at least the most basic issues. And it's really hard for me to imagine how we move forward, like literally how we move forward as a country, if we cannot even establish that. So I agree that that's an incredibly important function for the public interest. But I don't know whether it's a whether we can expect the Mueller, the end of the Mueller investigation as such to produce a resolution of those issues for the public. I And I think that, you know, your reference to what a House Judiciary Committee may have to do in the wake of the whatever report gets issued or whatever facts are, are shared with them, I think should remind us that the investigation doesn't end because the Mueller investigation ends, right? And these questions are not going to be fully resolved. I don't know. We've debated a lot on this show how Mueller understands his mandate, and we still don't fully know the answer to that question. But we know that it is not one of the other choices that was available to the United States government after the 2016 election, which was to have a bipartisan commission that would have investigated Russian interference into our elections and issued a 9-11 style report that was a real narrative to explain to the American public what happened and be factual and authoritative. We didn't go down that road. So you know, unless Congress decides that it wants to produce something like that, I would be very surprised if uh, anything released out of the Mueller investigation to the public does that in that way. And I think that instead, what we're probably going to see is, you know, Mueller spinning off prosecutions to other parts of the Justice Department, which we've already seen, handing over some matters to Congress, and they will then carry out their own hearings, their own investigations, and issue their own reports, as well as perhaps engage in impeachment proceedings if they if they think that's warranted. And so this is going to go on for a while yet. So this gets to a question, something that Ben and I were talking about at lunch earlier, I think sort of an embedded assumption. And that's one of the most interesting questions we don't have an answer to is not what Robert Mueller thinks about his obligation to make information public, but what Robert Mueller believes is his obligation to share information with Congress that is relevant to its Article I functions. So if the executive branch comes across information that they don't think is part of a chargeable crime, but is clearly relevant to impeachment or other sort of legislative considerations, what is the duty and obligation of somebody sitting in the Justice Department. And and I think there's very, very strong arguments on both sides. I would tend to say that there is an obligation to produce that information. So one of the problems that I have with this whole conversation, and, and Michaela Fogel and I yesterday wrote a piece about this in The Atlantic, but I, I don't understand what the phrase Mueller is wrapping up means. And, you know, normally when you say an investigation is wrapped up, well, you know, Shane Harris got murdered and they investigated the murder of Shane Harris. They arrest, arrested Tamara Wittes, charged her with the murder. You they, can totally take Tammy, Shane. <laughs> yeah, she, she stabbed you in the back. You never saw it coming. You know, the, and then when you're done with that, they wrap up the case and then it's done. Well, here it clearly, if, if you imagine an imminent end to the Mueller investigation, it clearly doesn't mean that because the Mueller investigation still has pending litigation at the investigative stage. Not even – they have two – Cases, the the mystery grand jury subpoena to the foreign-owned corporation and the Andrew Miller grand jury case, which are both pending in the courts, right? And so, you know, you still have still investigative litigation going on. Also, does if, – if you say wrap up, that kind of implies that what what you're saying is wrap up didn't find anything, so kind of went away, Right. But then if you say, well, okay, there's a report, is the report a report saying, oh, well, we didn't find any criminal activity here or we couldn't find any prosecutable This is all crimes. a huge misunderstanding. It was all a huge misunderstanding. <laughs> so we're closing the investigation. Or is it a report that reveals sort of devastating behavior that for some reason, like that the president is the president, you can't treat as a criminal matter. So you're doing something else with it. Or when you say wrap up, does it mean you're finishing the investigation, but now it's time for decisions 
as to whom you're going to charge, whether you're going to charge certain individuals, certain conduct? Or does it mean, as some of this conversation has suggested, actually, you're going to close the Mueller investigation and you're going to kick and refer all the components of it that are still active to other Justice Department components. And so one of the problems I have with this whole Mueller is wrapping up thing is even assuming it's true, I don't really understand what it's supposed to mean or what it what it indicates other than that Bob Mueller is going to declare himself finished. Well, one thing I think it could indicate is, I mean, to Tammy's point about this thing does not just end with the Mueller probe. I have to think that the one person who's probably sweating the end of this the most and is anxious about where it really goes is Nancy Pelosi. Because yeah. if this thing come if this thing ends with a whimper and not a bang, which is to say that Bob Mueller does not issue a sweeping narrative that ties it all up and says it was the butler with the candlestick in the library. He's dumping it in the Democrats' lap. Right. Then the Democrats are going to have to move forward. And already you see Adam Schiff, I think, in a way, anticipating to some degree um both that there's going to have to be significant investigative momentum now generated by the Democrats in the House and also the way he has been flagging money laundering and the issues around financial crimes uh, suggests to me that I think he believes that Bob Mueller didn't really even look at that and is certainly not going to answer that. So I think we're sort of in for a you know, maybe Bob Mueller sort of flips the sign from open to close and he goes back to his life and the other things get, you know, kind of farmed out to people who can continue them. But that there's this whole new phase that will now open, which will be far more politically fraught than the first but, one. But that brings you back to the point that Susan raises, which is, does this whole new phase focus on discrete criminal investigations in the Justice Department and a lot of congressional activity? To what extent does that Acti- the congressional side activity have the benefit of the work that the Mueller. Oh, I think they can. Did. I think they'll ask yeah. for it. They can probably. Just, I would imagine they could demand it. So I'm not sure that's right. Well, they could try. And I think that I think that Mueller. This really puts a premium on the question Susan poses, which is, under what circumstances does a Justice Department investigation have a, a duty to a coordinate branch of government to provide information that may. It feed an impeachment inquiry. Look, and I, I think this gets to a larger point, which is that what we already know is really bad. What we already know is probably sufficient, at least for an impeachment inquiry, if not sufficient in the minds of lots of members for impeachment itself. And one of the games that has been being played here with, oh, let's wait for the Mueller investigation, let's wait for the Mueller investigation, has yet been about being responsible and waiting for facts to sort of be put on the table. It's also about waiting for political circumstances to change and an anxiety that really devastating, damning information that has come out in the past has kind of landed with, you know, a thud. There's just kind of, there's no response in Congress uh, because there isn't this sort of, there isn't the political appetite yet. And so I do think that one of the sources of anxiety about the idea that Mueller is about to wrap up now is not about sort of the sufficiency of a report, but about what happens if the Mueller investigation concludes, releases something very, very damaging and devastating, and yet is not bad enough to overcome the political inertia considering how sort of lethargic it's been in the face of really, really shocking stuff to date. You know, I I think one danger is that because Mueller's report might not do that, and even if it does convey a a very robust set of facts to Congress, Congress and specifically the House Judiciary Committee are the ones that are going to have to decide how to work this. It's almost inevitable that congressional action flowing out of the Mueller findings will get wrapped up in a broader Democratic Party political narrative of running against Trump, which means that from a public perspective, you know, these things are going to be conflated and there isn't going to be a common set of facts or a common approach. It's going to be a partisan food fight. And that to me is really unfortunate. Well, we're going to wrap up this segment. <laughs> but what does it mean? Clean say, what does it mean? Up? I'm going to wrap I it up. I just have one more thing. Yeah. 
brown Sorry. paper package tied up with string. That's mm-hmm. how I want it. Mm-hmm. Delivered to my mailbox at the Washington Post. Thanks. Um, this week in the Washington Post, yesterday, in fact, my colleagues Ellen Nakashima and Tony Rahm had a story uh, just reading from the lead here. The Trump administration is poised to issue an executive order this week to secure American telecommunications networks, a move that's likely to result in the barring of Chinese tech firms such as Huawei. According to three U.S. officials, the order, which President Trump is expected to sign on Friday, would give the Commerce Secretary broad powers to stop American companies from doing business with foreign suppliers. Uh, we actually, uh, a local boy reporter for the Post, broke that story about the executive One, one Shane Harris. Uh, so Ellen and Tony have now confirmed that this is actually going to happen this week. So Susan, when we first wrote about this story, actually, and it wasn't clear that this was actually going to become policy, and now it is poised to be so, one of the things that struck me was, I mean, A, this is obviously an escalation of long-running concerns that the intelligence community, even before President Trump was in office, have had about Huawei, which is this giant Chinese telecom manufacturer, the concerns being that this equipment could get embedded in U.S. or allied networks and essentially serve as conduits or mechanisms for surveillance. But that also it's giving a hell of a lot of power to a single U.S. official, namely in this case the Commerce Secretary, to essentially stop in, to step in and stop American companies from doing business with these foreign firms. So talk a bit about the intelligence component of this and like, you know, the, the why now and whether you think maybe this is a, a worthwhile thing to do. And, and then let's talk about this sort of, you know, it seems to me the uh, a very, what might, one might even say, anti-conservative instinct behind giving all this authority to a single cabinet official. Yeah, so I think in terms of the timing, this is a long-running concern, and the window is running out, right? So at some point, if you're going to decide that you are going to ban Huawei products, and and this is most relative as sort of they they begin to build the infrastructure undergirding 5G, like you have to make up your mind at some point because otherwise it'll be too late and it'll be sort of embedded throughout. And so there is to be clear, Huawei has components that will be essential pieces of such a 5G network. Exactly, and there is um, sort of a counter example because in the United Kingdom about 10 years ago, Huawei uh, signed a contract with BT such that Huawei now uh, comprises substantial portions of UK telecommunications infrastructure. They actually can't rip it out now. And so uh, we have sort of two models, right, that we've seen what the UK has done in trying to manage this risk. And, and they have a lot of um, uh, really interesting sort of lessons learned there. Um, but we've reached that point in the United States where we need to make a decision about whether or not we're going to move forward with this as sort of a managed risk or whether or not we just want to ban it outright. Um, And so, you know, the administration is deciding to ban it outright. Whenever you think about it as sort of, I think this regulatory question is really interesting. Um, I don't think it's especially shocking in part because we want to see the government exerting regulatory authority whenever there is a market failure that needs to be corrected. And so the market failure in this case, if you want to think about it this way, is that the appetite for a risky product is not being corrected. And actually, the risk here is not just that Huawei is a Chinese product um, and so that they're going to use it as a vector for espionage. Um, The UK has really been clear about this. They know that the Chinese have targeted the UK, but actually they've never used Huawei to do it. And so the UK's concern with Huawei is actually just that it's bad code, Mm -hmm. that it is not a secure product and that they don't have the tools in order to incentivize good behavior and good cybersecurity behavior moving forward. So that's the the sort of their concern. And so whenever you think about that being the market failure, whether or not it's, uh, you know, risky because it's related to, uh, you know, to the Chinese state or risky because it's cheap but not safe. That actually is exactly why the Commerce Secretary has sort of regulatory authority in this area in the first place. You know, one of the things that struck me about this article was the quote from an unnamed U.S. official saying, this is a national security issue. It's not a trade issue, by which he wanted to separate this decision from the ongoing trade talks with China or trade tensions with China, which is fine, well, and good. But, you know, it's clear here that what the government, what the Trump administration is trying to do is not only to block Huawei from the U.S., but to use this harsh tool, this ban, to try and persuade other countries to keep Huawei out of their markets as well. 
And that's something that that as a blunt instrument, it relies on the importance of the American market to other countries. It relies on the size and power of of the American sector. And it seems to me to be completely undermined by the by the trade policy of the Trump administration, which is, you know, constraining um, America's position globally. It's by having all of these trade fights bilaterally. It is reducing the stake that other countries have in going along with the United States. And it's also weakening our normative ability to be the standard setter on this stuff. So it puts us in the position of if we can't describe in detail to other countries what is bad and insecure about this code and why we felt compelled to go down this road, they're just going to ignore us. We don't have the, I don't think we have the juice economically, given our trade policy, to to make this fly. Right. There, and I think that's that's such an important point. And there's another risk here, which is, are we doing exactly what we've accused the Chinese of doing? We've accused China of failing to differentiate between their true national security interests and their national economic interests. And so by essentially conflating them or not being sort of a, a sufficiently clear in this case, I, I do think we might we might be undermining not just everything you sort of addressed, but actually our much larger posture towards China, which is the need to be really, really clear on which is which. It is also the case that uh, a lot of countries, a lot of the time that they have uh, protectionist impulses will tend to frame those in terms of national security concerns. And so, you know, saying something is a national security issue, not a trade issue, is a way of, in a lot of trade negotiations, of saying this is a trade issue that we're not going to, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're not, not going to compromise about. And, you know, famously, the, you know, the Japanese have historically refused to allow rice imports for supposed national security grounds because for them, you know, at least historically, I don't know what their current posture is, but, you know, rice, rice self-sufficiency is a national security issue. So you don't allow imports. And every other country in the world thinks of that as a uh, trade protection issue. But, you know, that's because, you know, different countries define national security in rather different ways. And so if I were China, I'm not sure I would take the U.S. insistence that this has nothing to do with trade competition, everything to do with national security very seriously. That said, as an American, given that we just indicted Huawei the other day, I take pretty seriously the idea that you know, having a whole lot of installed architecture made by Huawei is probably not a good idea in the national security interests of the United States. Yeah, we should be clear, you know, Chinese law is unambiguous that just because we don't have evidence that they've ever compelled Huawei to help them conduct espionage or other sort of attacks against other countries. Chinese law is unambiguous. They can do that. They reserve the right to do that. So whenever we think about sort of the, you know, the future risk that is certainly out there, one unintended consequence here, though, of taking a we're just going to ban an outright approach is, is it possible to actually prevent this stuff from getting into your networks? Or are what you're going to do drive this sort of so deep into the supply chain where you aren't going to understand when you have Huawei in your networks and where because there are so many different steps up the chain and they're branded in all kinds of different ways. And then you actually have them embedded without sort of the visibility, right? So this is what the UK is saying. Well, look, yes, we have this risk, but we know exactly where Huawei is. And they have this national center that actually examines and certifies all Huawei products. And Huawei comes in and agrees to show them the code. And they have cleared individuals that conduct these ongoing assessments. So the UK is saying, yeah, but we know where it is. We know what to look for. They're playing ball with us. If you guys say you just can't have any Chinese products, the end result here is not going to be that you don't have Chinese products in your networks. It's going to be that you don't know where they are and you don't have mechanisms to control them. And Huawei is not the only Chinese product, right? I mean, I mean, the phones that we all have sitting in front of us are manufactured by a company called Foxconn, you know, who works for Apple to design the iPhone, um, which is, you know, a, a and ch- not in Wisconsin, and not in Wisconsin. But not Tim anymore. Cook told us that he cares a lot about our privacy. I guess what I'm getting at here is like, you know, we're it's kind of a where does this end, uh, not not to judge the merits necessarily of the policy, but it seems to me that if you're going to apply this 
restriction to Huawei, there's a host of other Chinese products that at least you could imagine the United States would want to scrutinize very hard to determine if they also pose a surveillance or, or counterintelligence or intelligence threat. Right. And the order is not specific to Huawei. Right. It's not right? just about Huawei. It's, it's just kind of Huawei's the, the assumption right. that's what they're right. trying to do. But the language is much broader. And the concern is much broader. You know, Huawei is sort of the easy name to point to. But but yes, this concern exists, you know, in you know, many, many different companies. So, I mean, given that, I mean, this has been the issue of, you know, Chinese surveillance via technology and telecom products has been something that was flagged at least since the, the George W. Bush administration that I'm aware of. I mean, is, it, is this a place where the Trump administration deserves credit? I mean, setting aside, you know, whether this is something that you're doing it while you're uh, fighting maybe what people would think is an ill-advised trade war with China, I, I doubt that many people uh, in the intelligence community would say that the Huawei is perfectly benign and just let them build the 5G network, right? So I think that this is an area in which the actual policy decision makes a lot of sense, but it shows how damaging what the Trump organi- what the Trump organization, the Trump administration does on Freudian everything else. Slip. The Trump regime. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's that the lack of clarity that Tammy was speaking to. One of the things that the administration has been trying to do is lean on our NATO allies to say, hey, NATO allies, you guys use your market power to not purchase this stuff, right? The importance of having credibility, having alliances. And so the policy itself, I I don't think is particularly objectionable. There's, you know, you can... Reasonable minds can differ on sort of the, the the best way to achieve this goal, and most people agree and share the goal. But it is an illustration of why these other things are so important, and how kind of their ham-fisted approach in in those contexts really do have concrete national security consequences. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I think you know there are a bunch of areas where you look at the objective policy in in these sort of cybersecurity supply chain related stuff and and I, I have no problem with this. In fact, I think it's probably a good thing and long overdue. And I wish we could have had this conversation about it without talking about trade issues more broadly. But the way Trump behaves and engages with our trading partners, it's very hard to know whether a given step is a is a protectionist thing, a part of a build the wall thing, or a legitimate cybersecurity thing. They all kind of blend together. Or a retaliatory thing. Or a retaliatory, you know, I, I don't like I had a bad phone conversation with, you know, the uh, president of South Korea, so I'm mad, so I'm stamping my foot and talking about withdrawing from a free trade agreement kind of thing. Right. And if you can't tell the difference between between those things such that you have to say, you know, this is a national security issue, not a trade issue, though it in fact presents as a trade issue, you know, you're not going to be putting your best foot forward. You're not going to be making effective policy, even if you're right. Right. And this is the kind of policy that needs to be achieved over a long period of time. You need a lot of consistency on this issue. The executive order is the result of years of prior work implementing the executive order and and sort of uh, you know shepherding support for it that is going to be a multi-year effort this is not something in which you know speaking of impacts on the market the government can kind of tweet one thing one day and do something else and not get its act together and so one big question is does Trump care enough about this or can his administration discipline him enough so that next week he's not going to say something completely different and undo any good that was done? So I don't know about you guys, but when I'm standing in line at the post office, long lines at the post office, reminding myself that stamps.com is not a sponsor of rational security, (laughs) I think to myself, if only there were a company maybe run by former Mossad Israeli intelligence agents to deliver my mail for me. (laughs) Like Uber, but for Mossad. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily. It's the gig economy for former Mossad. There is. And apparently, no job is too small. (laughs) I want to just point out that that was a really good segue. You like that? That You like that? Awesome segue. I like the way it pivoted off of an ad. Yeah. That that we don't have. I like that too. We don't, yeah, we don't have them. Stamps.com. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe Psy Group would like to be. <laughs> Rational <laughs> like, Security is brought, brought to you, you by Psy Group. Group. Are you trying to sway a local county election for hospital supervisor? Psy Group can help. If you're not a customer, you're not trying hard enough. 
<laughs> that is it. That is the slogan. Um, and if you have read this terrific piece by Adam Entis and Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker, you will know what an app slogan that is. Um, so they actually, this was published this week. It's a lengthy profile uh, of this company called Cygroup, an Israeli private intelligence company whose slogan was Shape Reality. Uh, and what this is, it, it's a company f- of a number of different companies are like this, but this is the one they focus on, drawn from people who had served in the Israeli secret services and are self-described private Mossads. Uh, as they put it in the story, the most aggressive of these firms, PSYOPs, seemed willing to do just about anything for their clients. And they focus on this race for a, a, I mean, a, a hospital board seat in a small town in the San Joaquin Valley in California where the company was hired to essentially do information operations and create fake news and propaganda about a local activist who was running for the seat that was held by someone who was close to, if I got this right, an investor who had a lot of money on the line. It's a fascinating portrait, not just because of the level of detail that they have, but I think it really hits home the extent to which Intelligence professionals have fanned out and formed these private companies that are essentially doing versions of what the Russian government did in the 2016 election. Uh, They've turned this into an industry and they're using the skills that they learned as intelligence operatives for the state and are now selling them uh, to people who want to sway elections and smear their uh, opposition. I mean these, these are classic sort of dirty trick type political uh, operations that have now been corporatized, if you will, and if you have enough money, and apparently it's not that expensive, you can hire them. So, I mean, Tammy, I mean, you flagged this story. Uh, I'm sort of curious, like you're, especially if you're somebody who has spent a lot of time in Israel and understands the government and the nature of its services. I mean, what's, I mean, did this strike you as, of course this happened, or uh, or, or was it still sort of uh, stunning that it's gone this far? No, I, I do think it's stunning that it's gone this far um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, we talked a few weeks ago about this story of former National Security Agency employees working for a private contractor, taking a contract in the UAE that ended up being very sketchy and crossing a bunch of lines. And, you know, in that case, the United States has rules in place for export controls on such contract services, and it had to be approved. You have questions about what what went wrong there, but there's a process in place. Israel is a bit behind the curve in establishing those kinds of controls. They do have a certain check-in process, but it's pretty loose. And so in the midst of Israel's tech sector boom over the last decade and a half or so, you also have tech companies that are not like ways, you know, find your way through the rush hour traffic, but that are doing information operations instead. So the fact that they've grown up doesn't surprise me. The fact that they've been able to export themselves so aggressively with so little concern by the government about potential blowback, that does surprise me. Another thing that surprised me is that this isn't just uh, data gathering. It's not basic intelligence gathering, right? It's not opposition research. It's influence operations and, as you said, campaign dirty tricks. I mean, which you could do in a in an old school non tech way, but when you add technological capability to it, just has tremendous impact. And then the final thing that I found really surprising about this story is that there are some very senior, very distinguished former Israeli intelligence officials who have been attracted to sit on the boards of these companies. And, you know, the lack of any ethical framework for the work that they're doing is kind of shocking in a country that has in its military and its intelligence, this very deep-seated culture that they call purity of arms, you know, that the Israeli military sort of inculcates this. And this is a country with universal conscription. So everybody goes through the socialization process that this country only uses force, you know, on behalf of necessary moral goals. And these guys who are coming out of units in the military that are cyber intelligence units and then going into the private sector, as soon as they take off the uniform, man, that ethical framework appears to just fly out the window. And that to me is very odd. So I I would hope that the exposure of this kind of stuff 
does create a little bit of soul searching in in the Israeli tech sector. But ultimately, I think the Israeli government is going to have to take in hand, you know, what they create with their with their own military capability. There's also a, a section in the story, and we, it's a long story, so we don't have a lot of time to go into all the detail of it. But it points out that Psy Group had this larger ambition not to influence local elections, but to break into the U.S. election market more nationally. And that during the 2016 presidential race, the company pitched members of Trump's campaign on their ability to influence the results. Um, the owner of Psy Group, Joel Zamel, even talked to Newt Gingrich to offer his services to Jared Kushner. And eventually, all of this posturing and this effort to drum up business drew the attention of Bob Mueller, uh, who has been examining the firm's activities, the New Yorker reports, as part of the election probe. Maybe that's going to be wrapped up <laughs> coming <laughs> soon. But it's interesting that there – I mean, here you have a, a state-level effort coordinated you know, out of Russia, you know, ordered by the, the president of Russia. And at the same time, as this is or is happening and is not really well understood, I think, outside the U.S. intelligence community, a private company essentially wants to do the same thing. I mean, there you have, it seems to me, very clear evidence that these techniques uh, and the motiva- the techniques are the same but the motivations are different and that they are clearly not the sole province of a state. Um, whether or not Psy Group could have mounted as forceful an effort as Russia, I don't know. Uh, but it's quite telling that these are ideas that people were having in independently. Uh, it just shows you, I think, that the, the technology has gotten to the point where it's you so know, diffused. It's, to, it's all yeah. out of the bag now, right? Right. And I, I, I do think that there needs to be a public conversation about the fundamental unacceptability of all of this. This is not advertising campaigns on steroids. This is something that warps and threatens really basic values in our society including First Amendment values and this notion that in the United States, we have gone all in on the notion that the proper antidote to bad speech is good speech and is more speech. And whenever you have people engaging in this kind of behavior and using these tools, which should only be the providence of intelligence operations for very, very narrow, highly constrained, highly regulated purposes. When you bring them to bear on sort of our ordinary lives, it it really warps some fundamental assumptions and community ties. And so I think that there's going to be a, a substantial conversation to have about content regulation and all kinds of stuff. But I also think there probably needs to be a pretty strong shaming campaign in if we find out that a campaign has in, has employed these individuals a candidate whether it's for the presidency or for a hospital board or a company or whoever else that should be stigmatized by society we should we should understand that as not just being sort of political dirty tricks in the, like the you know everybody does it kind of way but in a that is not acceptable that is not something you can get away with that isn't something that's tolerable i think until we get that kind of response there's so much money here there's so little sort of regulatory or or legal framework that I don't see how you could prevent it from just completely running amok. Yeah, I I don't know that that's realistic. And I actually think that electoral politics, not only in this country, but in most countries, have always had that dirty tricks component of, you know, telling half-truths about your opponent or spreading rumors about your opponent or trying to cat catch your opponent or lure your opponent into some compromising position. I mean, that's par for the course. The only difference here is that they're setting up fake news websites and creating, you know, fake apparent civic groups to to do this stuff. But even that, I mean, happened in the analog era as well. To me, the norm that has been violated here is the transnational norm. The fact that these are Israeli companies selling their services to interfere in American elections. That to me, you know, and and a friend of mine was asking me earlier today, like, why do you think these Israeli companies thought it was okay to do this? 
Well, maybe part of the answer is because that norm has been busted at the governmental level, right? And so when you have senior ministers in the Israeli government interfering in American elections and American politics, then why wouldn't Israeli companies think it's okay too? I think we're at a point now where this is a, this is not only between the United States and Israel either. I think this is a norm that's broken down in a bunch of different places. And to me, that's the one that's worth trying to to undergird, to articulate clearly and to reinforce. And that's one where government actually has an ability to do it. But I don't think it's even the case that uh, the transnational nature of this stuff is new. I mean, the Soviet Communist Party had an active policy of getting involved in, you know, civic groups in other countries, labor unions, trying to infiltrate them and and using whatever institutions they could co-opt to uh, to promote their business. Uh, and similarly, you know, we did that kind of covert information campaigns in, in other countries we, as well. We used to do that and we stopped. Right, and, but, and we stopped because we developed a norm against it. Well, and but, I think that it's important to shore that norm up. Uh, so hang on. So I, I, first of all, I don't think the international nature of it is especially novel. I think what's especially novel is the idea that countries that we are allied with in the have developed a private sector in industry of hostile participation in our – hostile and covert participations in our institutions. And that I don't think I know of a lot of examples of. And it's sort of like allies for hire behaving like adversaries. And I think that's actually new and and somewhat different. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first on mine. Mine's an obituary of sorts. Uh, opportunity. Our Aww. fair Mars rover, our little rover launched 15 years ago on his mission to survey the Martian landscape, officially ended his mission today. Is he male? Is Opportunity? I don't know. I always thought, I, I say I always thought of him as a boy, but I guess it could be okay. a she. Okay. No, I'm just, just He's checking. either. Opportunity. I don't so know. What, cute. I, he was so cute. And sent us such cool little pictures. Awesome, amazing pictures unlike anything people had seen before. Uh uh, this is. We should say this was not an unexpected end. So much. didn't live to see the Mueller report. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> he's know. winding down. <laughs> oh, he's wrapped up. Oh, he has wrapped up. But you know, we don't know if it's still clicking away up there and just can't talk to us anymore. I, I yeah. feel so sad when it's I sort think of shut, about it. Yeah, it, it, I was also struck with the fact that it shut down after it what was described as a catastrophic planet-wide dust storm. Yeah, did you get that? Yeah, planet-wide <laughs> dust storm. Are you sure you want to move there, Shane? Uh, is that really where you want to go? As longtime listeners of the podcast will know, <laughs> the national security hook. <laughs> to Martian exploration here is that we need to find a way to get off this rock. We have a limited span of Planet habitable time left. Dust storm. I mean, look, Shane. if we don't all destroy ourselves, the sun's going to blow up in like a million years anyway and incinerate <laughs> everyone. So we got to find another place to go. And opportunity was was part of that. Actually, I was, it was it was interesting. I was watching as it happened last night. I, I'm rewatching the West Wing episodes, which are great. It's like. Comfort food. It's that comfort food for me. And they have one called about, an op, about a rover called Galileo 5. Uh, and it, it has a thing, too, where it goes up and they can't communicate with it. And somebody's questioning, um, why is it that we go – why are we even bothering with this exploring Mars? We already went to the moon. And uh, Rob Lowe's character responds like, you're right. And she says, why are we going to Mars? And he says, because it's next. Thumbs up on that. It's Aww. next. That's why we go. Bye-bye opportunity. All right. Bye-bye, little rover. Bye-bye. <laughs> mm. um, my object is uh, a story uh, about Tom Barrack. Trump oh, backer Tom Barrack. Oh, I love this object. No, this, I hate this no, object. I mean, I hate love it, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who was speaking in Abu Dhabi. And as had, one does. As one does. And had some thoughts. Uh, he, was, he was asked by the interviewer... Um, uh, CNN's Becky Anderson about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and, you know, 
what's the reputational damage to Saudi Arabia? Tom Barrack being someone who's invested in the Middle East for a long time and is very well known out there and is seen in the investor class as somebody who knows the region really well. So he says, whatever happened in Saudi Arabia, the atrocities in America are equal or worse to the atrocities in Saudi Arabia. He joked, as long as you don't make me a guest at the Ritz. Ha ha ha. ha, ha. ha, ha. It's funny because people were tortured. Wait, wait, it gets better. The atrocities in any autocratic country are dictated by the rule of law. Oh, the rule of law said it was okay to chop up Jamal. Fine. So for us to dictate what we think is the moral code there, when we have a young man and regime that is trying to push themselves into 2030, I think is a mistake. So Tom Barrick, I would just like to say hats off to you for one of the craziest most immoral and reprehensible analyses of Middle East affairs I've read in a long time. Kudos, I'm sure the man. check's in the mail. Yeah. Ben. No, I don't have no one. No object. object. Oh. I'm objectless. Damn. Do you have one? I don't have one either. Uh, so we're done? This is it. Are we just going to shut down like opportunity? Yeah, we're, we're, no, we're going to wind up like <laughs> There's Bob a Mueller. massive dust storm in the studio <laughs> and we're all dead. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'll do this sign off. It's okay. Okay. Uh, for the one last time. No, Wait, let's kidding. do it in Q and A format. Shane, who is Rational Security brought to you by? Well, Ben, Rational Security is brought to you by Lawfare. Oh, and and if you're a listener, what should you do? Well, first, you can find the show page at lawfareblog.com, and you can also buy merchandise at lawfarestore.com. Indeed, the Lawfare Store. The Lawfarestore.com. When you download the podcast, you should probably leave a rating and review about how great it is. What kind of rating should you leave? Preferably five out of five stars, and, Ben. And where should you leave it? You should leave it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download podcasts. Now, uh, the next question is who this week performed our music? Well, first, our audio engineer. Oh, who is our audio engineer? Was Matthew Kahn. Uh, and who is our producer and director and editor? Uh, Jen Patya Howell. Oh, thank you, Shane. And um, and who performed our music? Well, our music this week, Ben, came from Robert Mueller and his new C-pop boy band, My Way or the Huawei. Oh. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that groan we're It doesn't matter because nobody's still listening at this point. <laughs> <Can> <laughs> I, like, just, I thought they wrapped up. Like, can I just say that they do some Dylan covers like Huawei 61? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, who really performed our Writing music? Writing down the Huawei of love. No. <laughs> It's a lot way to hell. <laughs> <laughs> sure. well, that's the app. That's a lot way to hell edition. Could be like that every week. Who uh, really no. performed our Sophia music? Sophia Yan really performs our music, okay. and uh, and and on a, I'm sure on a keyboard with no embedded Huawei products, just to be safe. Yep. Yep. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.